Okay, it's uh, first Thursday of the year, 3 January. Got my, what does that say, y'all need Jesus shirt from my daughter on? Okay, yeah, she's up in New York, but she, she still speaks, uh, what do you call it, Florida knees. Yeah. Yeah. North Carolina is too, that's right. Okay, we're going to read this day in Christian history, January 3rd. Some choices have high stakes. Deliver us, Lord Jupiter, shouted Trajanus Decius, emperor of Rome, as stones and arrows showered around him. Deliver us, Lord Jupiter, for I have delivered all of Rome into your hands and the hands of our ancient gods, cried the beleaguered monarch as his horse stumbled forward through the dark waters of the tangled marshes of Dobruja. His men followed grimly, fighting as they fled, pressed violently on their left, assaulted mercilessly on their right, and pursued from behind, Decius's Roman troops bowed wearily and gradually succumbed to the fatal blows of the barbarian Goths of King Cneva. Decius fell at last, one dark form among so many trampled underfoot by panic-stricken horses and pulled down by the sucking waters of the steaming swamp. His body was never found. Decius had been emperor for fewer than three years, coming to power in a time when Political turmoil, military crisis, and economic instability threatened the Roman Empire. Decius sought to unite his subjects through forced submission to the ancient Roman gods. Perhaps, he reasoned, the gods will favor us once more, give us final victory over the pestilent Goths, and restore the glory of the empire. On January 3rd, 250, he published an imperial edict commanding all citizens of the empire to sacrifice to the Roman gods. Those who did so were given certificates as evidence of their compliance, while those who refused were imprisoned or executed. Decius's edict initiated the first universal Roman persecution of the Christian church. Untold numbers of believers suffered the loss of family, freedom, and life itself. Among those martyred over the next two years were the bishops of Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem. When Decius died in battle against the Goths in June of 251, the pogrom ended, but the lull revealed a spiritual war within the ranks of the Christian community itself. Many believers had sacrificed to the gods to save their lives, and others had illegally obtained certificates without sacrificing. And now thousands of lapsed Christians begged to be received back into the fellowship of the church. A great controversy ensued. Some of those who had been imprisoned for their faith wrote letters of pardon to large numbers of those who had denied Christ. Some dishonest individuals produced amnesty papers in the name of dead martyrs. Bishops were divided over how to treat the lapsed Christians. Some called for rigid excommunication. Some demanded a general amnesty. Eventually, they agreed that those who actually sacrificed to the gods should be readmitted to the communion only when dying. 
Those who obtained a false Roman certificate but had not actually sacrificed to the gods could be readmitted upon repentance and penance. Without sorrow for their unfaithfulness, they would receive no grace. However, bitter dissensions over the matter continued with resulting schisms. When another great persecution arose under Emperor Valerian in 257, a wider amnesty was offered to those who had defected during the days of Decius. This was not the sign of a weakened standard, but rather a gracious opportunity for the shunned to stand where once they had fallen. Many returned to the fold, many in turn sacrificed their lives for Christ. And they ask, how do you feel the church should have dealt with Christians who sacrificed to the Roman gods or who obtained counterfeit certificates of compliance? Well, the answer is here, isn't it? How should churches today deal with members engaged in egregious sin? And Galatians 6.1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another Christian is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Oh, there you go. Hi, you guys were here last year. Give me your names again. Tom and Gail Fritch. Tom, there you go. So sorry about that. Tom and Gail Fritch. How long are you down here for? Uh, a month. A month. Good to have you. Nice. Welcome, welcome. Very nice. All right. Let's see here. We've got, uh, um, oh, prayer request. What's going uh, no, what happened is I took them back in and I said, these aren't working because like I said, yours are mine were bigger so it was down lower and i told them i said they're not made the way that you said you would oh you're right they're not right so they're making a new pair right now so i got two pair on until that is cleared away um let's see here um yeah well there you go um copy of the calendar and the uh the room back here you know the the handicapped boy that uh mm -hmm. um, jamie who took all the photos and made the annual calendar if anybody wants a copy of that let me know and i will let the family know and they'll send you one okay They're, it's hanging on the wall in the kitchen and um uh just you guys uh, they said if somebody in the church wanted one to, to uh, just let them know and then we have elise who i talked about last week who was beaten up by somebody and she was dreadfully hurt um is out of the hospital but she's still got some real problems her head is got things draining out of it and she's got a terrible jaw and and uh so anyway we need prayer for elise not only for uh her physical afflictions but some spiritual issues as well and then i saw a post just a while ago graham in scotland is not doing well again so we want to keep him in our prayer as well and um uh let's see here is there anything else that i'm forgetting i'm forgetting if i am okay um so let's go to the lord in prayer really quickly yes Okay. Henry. Oh no. Oh boy, he's here in Sarasota. I'm not sure where he is. He's related to Lori McDowell. Oh yes. Okay. All right. Well, we'll pray for Henry as well. Heavenly Father, you've heard the uh, prayer request for this little child, seven months old, that has double pneumonia, and we would pray that. Uh, you would be with the family and with the child and that healing would come about. And uh, if it's by your divine hand, may it be so. And if you are going to leave it to the uh, doctors and their capable of skills, then uh, just be with them and help them to make the right decisions to get this child up and going and uh, living a happy and fruitful life once again. And we certainly pray for Graham in Scotland who is struggling right now once again with an issue that may uh, have him back in the hospital for the umpteenth time in the past how many years lord just have mercy on him and uh help him to uh, not have to go back into the hospital it seems like he gets worse when he goes there than when he's at home and lord we also pray for release and for healing for her and uh both emotional and uh physical and spiritual healing 
And Lord, we would pray these things that you would be glorified through them and that these people would be built up and edified in you. And we certainly pray for this uh, class that our uh, um, teaching would be proper and that uh, if there's anything that is incorrect in it, that people would be alerted to that and not to be misled by some incorrect uh, doctrine which is put forth. But we would pray that's not the case and that you would favor whatever is taught here if it's in accord with your word. And so, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> okay, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians and we're in, I uh, can't believe it's 2019. Absolutely unbelievable. Um, oh, before we go, now, you know what? I can't read that because we uh, we read this day in Christian history, so I'm going to have to save this for another uh, Bible class. But I read it uh, before church on Sunday and uh, something about handing out tracts, little uh, plug for you all. They're back there. Grab them, hand them out. They have an effect, as we saw in that uh, last Sunday. And I'll try to remember to read it before uh, a class here, maybe next week. But uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Okay, back up to 1. Yeah, yeah, if it's a paragraph, go ahead and just... Yes, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's basically the same, just reworded a little bit differently, but we'll go with it. Um, 2 5, 1 Corinthians 2 5. In the preceding verse, Paul spoke of his speech and preaching. When he came to those at Corinth, it wasn't with persuasive words of human wisdom. Instead, he came with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, in this verse, he explains why. It was for the uh, benefit of his audience. If he came preaching with eloquence and the wisdom of men, they would have been swayed to him and to a message which was devoid of the gospel. But in order to show that his words were to glorify God, he kept them directed to the message of Jesus. And I told you, I watch these TED videos a lot. I've seen a couple really good ones this week. But um, they're always, always, they diminished any possibility of there being a God. I have yet to see one that would even hint at that possibility. So everything is taken from a secular point of view. But it doesn't negate the, uh, you know, the information that they're speaking. They're just, you know, they're just people that probably don't believe in God. But I watched one yesterday that was about how to speak properly you know, how to be an effective communicator and the things that we error in. Like some people will always deny their own faults. They always put their uh, the blame on other people. That's one of, he went through a list of those and then he went through a list of these things is how to be positive when you're speaking so that people will respond to you, okay? Nothing wrong with that. It's, it's something that we can learn from. But quite often you will hear people in a church, I've been to churches where the sermon was based on exactly that. And all they do is insert God or Jesus, and that's about it. They wrote, There's nothing biblical about it. It's just, you know, more a life application. And I think it's really sad if you go to a church and you hear a sermon that is, I don't care how uplifting it is. I don't care how, you know, it, it makes you feel if it doesn't get into the word of God. And if it doesn't direct you to Jesus Christ, you might as well be watching a TED video. There's no difference. If they're just going to say, and I will give you a perfect example of this because I've watched a couple of them over the years, is Joel Osteen. 
If you've ever seen a Joel Osteen sermon, you, you, you're uplifted, no doubt about it. I mean, he sits there and he tells you how great things are and you think, oh boy, you know, if you didn't know Christ, you might as well just be in a, a, a business meeting where you've got a great speaker, right? Once in a while, he throws in God. Very, very rarely does he ever say anything about Jesus and never does he bring in any doctrine. What's the point? Like I said, you can get that at any company in the world that's hired a professional motivational speaker or a speaker of how to do this or that within your work environment. There's ultimately no point to it. If that is what you're going to church for, why bother? You can watch on video and you can figure something out and you can fellowship with your TV instead of fellowshipping with other Christians. So I, I, it, it's very sad how people will do anything except talk about scripture and how scripture points to Christ. And I'm not saying all churches are like that. I'm just saying that there are lots of churches that are like that. So you, you want to make sure that, as I said, his words were to glorify God. He kept them directed to the message of Jesus. If you're listening to any sermon and it doesn't do that, I wouldn't listen to that guy again. Everything should be centered on Christ or it is of no value at all. Um, I, I think you see, I mentioned it in the Prophecy Update last Sunday, is that there's this move for people to go to Israel and to study under Jewish rabbis, okay? Or if they don't go to Israel, then they do it online with these Jewish rabbis. And you are completely wasting your time. I don't care how much information you get out of the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses, you are not getting valid information because they will never bring in the name Jesus. They will never say how this points to Jesus or how it morally applies to their condition as Jewish people who have disobeyed exactly what it says in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. That's why they've been under punishment. That's why they are still under punishment. Nothing wrong with the Jewish people. There's nothing I'm talking about as a group of people, just like the people of the world. I'm talking about their relationship with God. You, you are devoid of that if you are going to study under a Jewish rabbi. It's just a waste of time. You have to keep your Bible time, your church time, in the context of Jesus Christ. You must do it. If not, then you're wasting your time. Okay, so when we hear a message and are swayed by it, we place our faith in it. If we hear, can we help you, ma'am? When, uh, let's see here, um, if we hear a great presentation about the newest product that will help us lose weight, we are bound to put our faith in what we've heard and buy the product. Isn't that why we, uh, uh, oh, I got her mad, didn't I? She left, yeah. I've, I've got to not do that to her again. Oh boy, yeah, I got my mom mad at me. No, she uh, did she? Oh, good. Okay, I thought she was mad. I, you know, I, I said to myself the last time I did, I said Monday stations she's gonna get mad at me and she's gonna yell at me in the church because she's got a temper. So I'm glad. You sure that she forgot something? Okay, good. Well, I feel better. I'll do it to her again then. Um, okay, let's get back into this. Uh, when we hear a message and are swayed by it, we place our faith in it. Okay, if we hear a presentation about the newest product that will help us lose weight we're bound to put our faith in what we've heard and buy the product. If we hear a politician with an ear-tickling message of wealth and prosperity, we may put our faith in him and cast our vote for him. Whatever the presentation, if it is smooth and properly targeted, we may exercise our faith in what has been said and accept the premise. People do it with products, people, and even religions, all regardless of whether or not the message is true. This is the reason why Paul wrote these words in Galatians chapter 1. Let me read this to you from Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Very important set of verses. Galatians chapter 1 is an extremely important passage in Scripture. It says, um, verse 6, I marvel 
that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. In his words to the Galatians, he uses the term, we or an angel from heaven. Paul was an apostle. Should another apostle come with another message, it is to be rejected. Only the message of the true gospel is acceptable. This is important because even today, many claim to be apostles, and yet their message is not directed to Jesus. The Bible is written, and we are accountable to compare what we hear with the words which have been written. Angels are considered authoritative speakers who carry heavenly messages. Both Islam and Mormonism, and this is something that you should remember when you're talking to a Muslim or when you're talking to a Mormon, okay? If you talk to somebody and you want to evangelize them and they are interested in listening, not just arguing with you about their side of the message, if you want to tell them why they are wrong, this is an important precept. They claim their message was received by angels. Right? Mormonism says that the angel Gabriel came and gave him this message. Right? Muhammad talked to Gabriel. Well, Paul preempted them by 722 years. Mormonism claimed that they received their revelation by an angel, the angel Morani or Moron, if whatever. So, okay, so he, he claimed that he had a message from God. If the people that followed Joseph Smith simply went to the Bible, if they simply read the Bible, not one of them would be in Mormonism today. Not one of them. So that is something you can start with when you talk to either a Muslim or a Mormon. Is say, do you know that this was said long, long, long before your religion started, whether it's 722 years or 1600 and some years or 1800 and some years. He was in the 1860s, I believe, was uh, Joseph Smith. You can say, why would God contradict himself? Why would he do that? Okay, now if you don't accept the premise of the Bible, like a Muslim, maybe you have a case to argue against it. But a Mormon? Absolutely not, because they claim they believe the Bible and the Book of Mormon. God will never contradict himself, and so you at least have a place to start with when you bring that up. Okay, so um, uh, where was I there? Um, uh, yeah, term from heaven, uh, only the message, where okay, Mormonism, They uh, by angels. Okay, and yet both of them proclaim a message other than the one recorded in the Bible, and therefore they cannot be of God. It is impossible. If you say, okay, I believe scripture. And another thing about Islam, they do believe in the prophets. They believe in Moses. They believe in all the prophets, okay? A succession of them. They believe Jesus was a prophet, okay? But where is the source of information for those prophets and for Jesus? It's the only place. This is it. This is your only source of those people. So if... Islam comes along and they say, well, they were just prophets and they have corrupted the Jewish scriptures. How do they know that? Because that's the only source that we have for these people. There's nothing outside of them. Okay. So what you, when you talk to them, I'm talking about Muslims, about the corruption of the, uh, you know, the, the prophet of Moses or the prophet of Jeremiah or the person of Jesus, you say the corruption is not from the Bible. The corruption is from the angel. 
it is from Muhammad, who was crazy because he never spoke to an angel anyway. It was made up. But you see what I'm saying? The corruption didn't come from the Jews. It came from the people afterward. These have been secured. And then that helps to know the historical context of the Bible. It also helps to know the uh, reliability of the texts that we have, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc. Okay, it's not possible. It's not possible that Islam is correct. It is impossible. Plus, the nature of God, uh, the Quran shows very clearly that God, their God, is vindictive and he's changing. God can neither have change in him nor can vindictiveness implies change all by itself. So it cannot be the God of the Bible. It's impossible. All right. So those are the type of things that you need to know. But just bringing them directly to Galatians chapter one is your first step in trying to get them converted to the truth. Okay. The what? Make sure you're packing. Yeah. Make sure you're packing when you uh, talk at least to one of those two categories. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, unfortunately, many are swept up into these false religions because they don't check with the Bible and especially the Mormons. But Islam too, if they simply understood the reliability of the Bible, the truth of it, if they just checked, if they would just check, because before I put my hope and my faith in the Bible, I had already read the Quran. I, you know, studied the Eastern religions. And I read the Bible when I was young, but I wasn't convinced of anything. I had to, you know, go around and check these things. It's easy to say, well, I follow Jesus and I would never follow the Quran. But if you've never read the Quran, how can you defend that? That's the same thing as saying to a Muslim, well, you're wrong. The Bible says, and they say the Quran says, you're arguing from one source without understanding the other. You need to be able to say, I have read your book. I have studied your religion and it is not correct. Or you're just, you know, you're putting your hope in something that may or may not be true. The more that you study, the more you will find that the Bible is true and that it is reliable. Now, that doesn't mean you need to read those other things in order to have faith in Christ. I'm saying that you will develop a greater understanding of what the Bible is in relation to the other religions. Okay. Anyway, um, but if you just study the Bible only for the rest of your life and no other religious text, you will be fine. Don't get me wrong. What I'm trying to say is that if you're talking to other people about these things, and if you have questions that they're challenging you on, it's good to know their religion as well. Or you're kind of just, you're, you're talking apples and oranges. Yes. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. Okay, well, you keep that on that chair, mister. Um, all right, so uh, let's see here. Um, only through the one true message of Jesus Christ can we avoid falling into a pit of false religion. In the gospel, however, is found the true power of God. When the message is received, the believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the soul is converted to everlasting life. Paul speaks of this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what he says there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, um, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God uh, may be of God and not of us, okay? The earthen vessels or jars of clay, I think is what the NIV says, is your body. You're made of the earth. You're going to break down someday just like an earthen vessel will, okay? So um, uh, what was, I just had a thought about that. Well, it went out of my head. Anyway, okay, life application. Test all things and hold fast to what is good. Stand firmly on the truth of the Bible and in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. I know what I was going to say. Um, I Every week I get several, and when I say several, I mean more than five, usually 10 or more emails asking about eternal salvation. It's one of the most common emails that I get is people say, 
I'm struggling with the doctrine of eternal salvation. And what I suggest to them always is to watch the Thursday night Bible classes because we talk about it constantly. But another place that you can go, and I, you know, the more that we've been doing it, the more I realize this book is very, very good on that is the book of Hebrews. We've been going through it now for uh, what nine, uh, uh, I think we're in chapter nine, verse 10 today or something. But if you start with chapter one, verse one, and you read those commentaries one a day, We'll be done with the book of uh, Hebrews, and you'll be caught up with us by then, okay, probably. It's 303 verses long, I think, and I've got to tell you what, there is so much, so much about the doctrine of eternal salvation in the book of Hebrews that if people would just simply read it and study it, they would be really well settled in that doctrine. But it's very sad because if you don't know Scripture, if you're just going to take people's opinion about a matter, the next time somebody comes along and says, oh, well, you know, once saved, always saved is a heresy and it's false, then all of a sudden you've got this dilemma on you. Why? Because you are not grounded in the word of God. If you are grounded in the word of God, you will be able to say what you're saying is completely wrong. And I'll give you an example. In uh, the people that deny eternal salvation, they will use the verse from the book of Revelation that says, um, let me find it really quickly. I don't want to misquote it to you. So let me find it. And, but this is on my mind. I get these emails constantly. I don't know if these people, you know, actually watch the Bible studies or not, but I get so many of these uh, again and again and again, the same uh, question that, uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, it's the one where I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. If you, uh, yeah, it's to the church and it says, um, uh, hang on just a second here. If you, yeah, if you find it first, let me know. Um, I can't see to buy fire for me, a pillar in the temple of your God, cold works. Um, Let's see here, he who shuts and indeed uh, come in uh, earth, uh, take your crown. All right, no, it's not that one. Let's see here, I know your works and patience, repent. Um, it, it's one of these, he says, I'm going to come and take your lampstand, okay? And people that do not believe in eternal salvation will, oh, here it is right here. Verse five, two five. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. Do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And I get this verse sent to me all the time. Well, how do you defend against that verse? It says he's going to remove your lampstand. Why is that incorrect? He's speaking about a church. He's not speaking about an individual at all. It's clear in the first chapter he explains it. Exactly. He says um, he's walking among the lampstands. Okay. And um, his feet were like fine brass. He's walking uh, among the lampstands. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, yeah. Then I turned to see and that uh, spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay. And uh, anyway, he explains the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So you can't use that verse. But people that are not willing to read their Bible and to think on these verses will always be trapped by those type of verses because they say, oh, Jesus can come and take my lampstand. He can't take your lampstand. You don't have a lampstand. All right, the church has a lampstand. So every single verse that somebody sends you that denies eternal salvation is taken out of context. Every one of them, they are not in context. So if you just remember to keep things in context, and if you see a verse that says, oh, you can lose your salvation, here's the proof of it, Look at the context, and you will not struggle with that doctrine. But I get email after email after email every week on that one particular subject, along with many, many others. But that is probably one of the biggest ones. And it's heartbreaking, because 
the ultimate goal of somebody telling you that you can lose your salvation is so that they can keep you in bondage so that you will listen to them. They have denied the freedom of Jesus Christ, the grace that he has provided, and they are trying to get people into bondage. And then somebody that's unschooled hears that, and they pass it on, and pretty soon you've got an entire group of people that are scared of losing their salvation. Right. So, when they say that, it's like, you know, and, and you'll point to the problems that they're having with their non-contextual structure right. that they're doing. I would say, look, I'm not going to convince you that you can't lose your salvation. So... Go your merry way with that, but like you can live in fear your entire life. That's right. Like, you are the one that will suffer a, with that bad doctrine. It is not going to be me because I am convinced of what the Bible says because I'm taking it in context. That's all you need to tell them. But you're normally not going to change people's minds that are out there putting that kind of nonsense out on Facebook or where, whatever social media you're in. If you see that and they're posting that kind of stuff, they've got their mind made up. And it doesn't matter if you tell them that's out of context. They don't care. No. Lampstand has nothing to do with you. Here's the verse that proves that. They'll just ignore you or call you a, a, a bad word or something and go on to the next victim. Anyway, 2-6. Two, six. Six. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rules of this, the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Are you using the uh, New King James Version? I am not. Oh, okay. Well, that's very, very close. I mean, that... Okay. Um, two six verse six begins with however this is given to contrast his preceding argument which encompassed verses one through five which Jim read to you and we did the last verse a second ago without words that were persuasive or which contain merely human wisdom he notes that we speak wisdom among those who are mature the we is specifically speaking of the apostles but it is inclusive of the body of believers this is certain because in verse ten he will use the term us when speaking about spiritual matters revealed to the body. He will continue with the use of we and us throughout the chapter. What is available to Paul is also available to all in the body. It is the knowledge of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The wisdom is, as Paul says, among those who are mature. What he is implying is that we know as believers, what we know as believers is more mature than all of the other heady knowledge of the world which he has been speaking about. He has relayed to us the various wisdoms which people hold to. The first was the wisdom of the Greeks, which relied on philosophic disciplines mentioned in 122. Next in verse 27, he mentioned the wisdom of God, which is the message he preached. And now in this verse, he speaks of the wisdom of this age. There are intellectual wisdoms of which there is nothing wrong in knowing. And that's what I was referring to with the TED videos. You watch these things and you get a lot of good information. If you want to watch people that are specialists in dogs, they've got information on that. If you want to know physics, I love watching the physics, the speed of light ones and how does light warp and, you know, how does the universe bend and why does the uh, planets go around the sun? How does that happen? It's because of the time space. Uh, it's like a fabric that bends down with... Uh, gravity, okay? I love that kind of stuff. There's no, nothing wrong with knowing those things. And as Johannes Kepler said, and I've said this a couple classes ago, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. All right? There's nothing wrong with those type of disciplines. What's wrong with it is if that is your end. If you're just saying, well, I'm learning for the sake of learning so that I can become my own God, that's a real problem. But um, let's see here. They are wisdoms which are futile when devoid of the truth of God. Only when those wisdoms are combined with a knowledge of our creator 
do they become true wisdom? And that's where Johannes Kepler steps in. The problem with Albert Einstein was that he was a great, great thinker. He was, what he would do is he would go into mind thoughts. He'd be like on a train and he would think, okay, I'm on this train and if I'm going at say uh, 80 miles an hour and the speed of light is, I, what is it, 260, we'll say 268,000 miles per second. I don't know exactly, but it's like that. He says, what's that? 226. 286,000 miles per second. See, and I knew that, but I just, I, I was letting you look smarter than I, yes. A 186,000. See, I knew that too, but I was testing you with him. Okay. Anyway, um, so you've got this, this speed of light and I'm on the train. Does the train add to the speed of light? So if somebody has a flashlight here and I have a flashlight here and he says, no, it's impossible. The speed of light will never go faster. Okay. So he would think about those things, these mind thoughts when he was on a train or when he was standing looking at a reflection or when he was looking at somebody that was falling out of the sky and he'd say, okay, that guy's falling at this speed, but okay, he's going through mind thoughts. The problem with Albert Einstein was his mind thoughts were never directed to God. They were always directed to how do I answer the questions of the universe apart from God or with an incorrect idea about God. He was what we would call a Benedict Spinoza pantheist. He believed that God was everything. Pantheism means God is the universe. Everything is God, okay, which means that that tree is a part of God. Well, that's not the way the Bible describes God. The creation is apart from God. God is now, God works in the creation, kind of like a painter is working on a canvas, but the creation is not God. He created it, not out of himself, which would be ex deo. He created out of, anybody know the term? Ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, okay? So he created out of nothing. Everything exists because of his spoken word, not because it is a part of him, all right? Big difference, ex deo. If it is ex deo, if this is part of God, that means that this has been here forever and we would never be able to move forward in time because this would be eternal okay it's matter and we've talked about this before try to remember if you have matter that existed forever then you're always going back looking for a beginning and there can never be forward motion if this is eternal and never had a beginning you could not be having this conversation right now we would not be going forward in time because there would be an infinite regress of time. If you think it through, just think it through, you'll understand that. That's why it is impossible for the universe to have existed forever. And that was the problem. When Einstein came up with the theory of relativity, time, space, and matter all happened at the same moment. There was a time when there was no time. There was a time when there was no space, and there was a time when there was no matter. There was nothing except God, okay? And he didn't want to accept the except God part. He just wanted to say that the universe suddenly came into existence, but how do you prove that apart from God? And that's why he could never come to a resolution in his mind about the nature of things. It's because he left God out of the equation. He wanted to come up with the theory of everything. And that's what I watched the TEDx a couple days ago. The guys are still trying to develop a theory of everything so that they can prove that the universe doesn't need a God. They're going about it the wrong way. It will never happen. There is a God, he created everything, and therefore we can be secure in that. But if you take God out of the equation, it is simply wasted time. They won't say that though. They'll say, no, we're trying to find it and you're an idiot because you believe in a God, but the evidence is there, folks. It is there, there is a God, all right? All right, so um, let me read that again. Only when those wisdoms are combined with the knowledge of our creator, do they become a true wisdom. As the Bible states on several occasions, the fear of the Lord is 
The beginning of wisdom. That's right. Proverbs 9.10, for example. This is what Paul says that the, uh, this is why Paul says that the message of the gospel is for those who are mature. If you believe in God and you don't understand anything about the workings of the universe, I hate to tell you, but you are more mature than those theolo those non-theology-believing, uh, th um, non uh, whatever you would call them, uh, scientists, whatever. Yeah, you are more mature than they are because you at least understand the foundation. They don't have any basis for understanding the foundation, and so everything that they have is always going to be looking for an answer that they will never find until they come to, yeah, it is, it's very sad. It is the highest type of knowledge because it gives the highest form of understanding to all things. That is the fear of the Lord, understanding him and that he is the creator. The reason for every what or why is ultimately found in God. Apart from him, there is always going to be a disconnect to the final resolution of any intellectual matter. Always. You're always going to have, and that's why those guys are, you know, he's talking about CERN a couple nights ago. These are only five-minute videos. It's not like they take a long time, and he goes cooking, and I don't want to start whatever movie we're watching because she wants to enjoy it too, so I watch a couple little four- or five-minute videos. And you'll always learn something, but just keep remembering that what you are saying, it may be correct, but it's lacking. That's what you need to remember. It's lacking. They are not putting things in the perspective of God, and that is why they will never come to the right resolution. Anyway, therefore, the gospel is not the wisdom of this age. It is a wisdom which transcends time and goes directly into the mind of God. It is something which cannot be found in the thoughts of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And you think of it, all these people today, they're, this global warming, this globalist agenda, all of these things are completely against what Scripture would say. The movement of the nations that they're talking about, I go through it sometimes in the prophecy updates, it is completely against the will of God. I may have said it, or it may be coming this week anyway, I uh, can't remember, but the, uh, uh, yeah, it's coming up in the sermon, I'm not going to say it now. Anyway, uh, these people are the rulers of this age. It implies anyone who bears a high degree of intellectual knowledge, but which is devoid of God. Stephen Hawking's, right? Great knowledge, great mind, devoid of a knowledge of God. He died apart from God. He died not believing that there is a creator. With all of that intelligence, he couldn't simply say, there is a God. Hubris. Yeah, hubris. It is. If we were to equate them to the people of today, we would call them the evolutionists the global warming scientists, the big bang theorists, and so on. They're all out there, they all have their agendas, they have left God out of the equation and therefore nothing makes sense to them and they want things to make sense. These are people who are working on agendas which have removed God from the picture. They're pursuing knowledge, but doing so without including the ultimate reason for all that has happened or will happen. And I will add in another thing, they're pursuing knowledge or they are pursuing power. You get the people up in the government, they probably don't even believe the global warming thing, but they are pushing it because they understand that it meets the goal of power. If you can tell people that the world needs to be controlled because we're changing the climate, then they get all of the money, they get all of the funding, they can do whatever they want, and you become subservient to them. So it's not just knowledge, it is also power. And some of them are combined, they actually believe the, they drank the Kool-Aid on this global warming thing. Some of them probably just know that I am getting rich off of this and that's all that matters. Al Gore, Al Gore yes. Al Gore. And therefore, their findings will always come to nothing, as Paul says. Let me make a correction here really quickly. 
Um, T-H-E-I-R is there. It's not T-H-E-R-E. Anyway, um, they always come to nothing. In the end, without considering God as the first cause, there can be no foundation for how things started or, well, where they will end. You're just, you got no foundation in it. He is the first cause. He is the final cause. He is everything in between. He is the purpose of creation. All right. Now, he created man, and it's true that the man creation was made, and man is the highest part of that creation, and God did not need to create. So you could say that the purpose of creation is man, but that's not actually true because the purpose of creation is man glorifying God. And so he is ultimately the purpose of creation. But you can't have man unless you have creation, okay? Ultimately, he wants man to have a fellowship with him and to glorify him. That is what it comes down to. It all comes back to God in the, the, the ultimate sense. Okay, anyway, life application. The universe didn't create itself. If it did, it would have had to have existed before it existed, which is a logical contradiction. This is the type of stupidity which the rulers, as Paul says, of this age must rely on in order to deny God. Have a little faith, use a little common sense, and be assured that God created, God sustains, and God will keep his promises to those whom he has called. Okay, created we know. We've got all kinds of verses about creation in the Bible. Sustaining, God sustaining the universe. Give me a verse where that is recorded. Colossians chapter 1. 17. Right, about 17. He holds all things together. There's another one where it says the same thing. Hebrews 1, I think it's verse 3. I think so. Let me read that really quickly. And uh, uh, those are the two sustaining verses because there has, to, if there is a universe, it has to be sustained by something. It cannot sustain itself. Hebrews 1 verse, uh, uh, let's see here. Yeah, 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding, sustaining, all things by the power, word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Once again, a proof of the deity of Jesus Christ, because he sustains all things. Only God can sustain all things. A created being cannot sustain anything in creation. I can't say, I can't keep that chair going for a second. If that was up to me to have that chair exist, it would pop out of existence right now. I can sustain nothing. Only one can sustain all things. And if Jesus is the one who is sustaining all things, he must be God. You got something there again? You keep raising that hand. One more time and you're out. Okay, here we go. Um, let's see here. Two seven. I'm kidding you, of course. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, the wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory. Okay. Time began. Oh. Okay, let me read that again. But we, when we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Okay, so a little different there. When you said glory, I saw that and I was, he's done. And then you threw in a little extra on me. Okay, verse uh, 2, 7, or what is that? That was 2, yeah, 2, 7. But is given in contrast to the wisdom of this age and also to the rulers of this age, which he just mentioned. Those so noted are, despite their high status now, those who are, as Paul says, coming to nothing. Many arguments and philosophies come and go which attempt to answer how we got here, why we are here, what our purpose is, and even how we can control our surroundings and our destiny. But without including God in the equation, the ruminations are futile 
and ultimately lack true wisdom because they lack the final answers. Exactly what I said in the last verse, same thing here. Understanding this, Paul says, but. On the other hand, and completely different from their futile contemplations, Paul goes on, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. As noted in the preceding verse, we is speaking of the true believer in Christ. It is not speaking of the mature in Christ, nor the learned in Christ, but all Christians. This is because all Christians possess the necessary starting point and finishing point of all wisdom, which is Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. This then is not referring to deep knowledge, but simply the gospel message, which Paul has been referring to all along, and which is summed up in verse 2-2, where he said, For I do not I, I determined to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right. It is true that there is much deep and intellectual study which can be obtained from the Bible and the many disciplines it reveals, but every one of those disciplines finds its true meaning and fullness in Christ. Okay, that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this class about the Jews. They can have all this wonderful knowledge about the Torah that I will never possess Never in all of my life, I will never possess the knowledge that they have on the hidden, you know, meaning of that vav and that particular word or why the structure of the Hebrew is this way. They can talk about those things all day and all night and they can say, see, I've got all of this knowledge about the Torah, but without Jesus Christ, it is absolutely purposeless. I hate to tell you, there is absolutely no purpose in this word if you take Jesus out of the equation. Okay. And that's why I say it's utterly futile. You get all the way through the Old Testament and all of the things that happened to Israel and you come to the New Testament and you say, what was the point of it? Without Jesus, if you just stop and you don't read the New Testament, you get to that last paragraph in Malachi and you say, it doesn't make any sense. There's no purpose in it. They are still looking for something that is going to redeem them, something that's going to make them the great nation on the earth and give them all the power over the nations. And they don't understand that he has already come. He's already been delivered. And all of that makes zero sense without him. None. And it doesn't. I got to tell you what. It doesn't deal with the sin problem at all, which is the one thing that they overlook time and time and time again. It's the sin problem. Even when they had the temple, I mean, you know, it was, it was futile. And Moses himself even knew it. But the temple's gone. What's, what's been going on for the last, for, for the last 2,000 years? Right. And they keep, well... I'll say it during the prophecy update, so maybe I'll, yeah. Benjamin Netanyahu greeted the Christians. So you're gonna, this is going to be a repeat. During that part of the update, just fall asleep. He, he, he greeted the Christians, and he said, prophecy is being fulfilled before our eyes. And it's true. I don't disagree with that at all. Prophecy is literally being fulfilled before our eyes almost every single day. We see something that is pointing to what's going on in Scripture. What is the problem with that? Well, when, with him saying that. He's on the wrong side of the cross, but more fundamentally, he's saying prophecy is being fulfilled. Okay. Jesus Christ is okay. Well, that's true, but he doesn't believe in Jesus. So we'll just leave that out. There's still a problem with him saying that prophecy is Nothing being fulfilled. In his book up to the end of Malachi has anything to do with, with What's happening. No, that's not true. Well, Isaiah well, prophesied of a coming kingdom. It prophesied that Israel will be back in the land and the land will bloom. The problem is, here's the problem. It's not just that he's missed Jesus. 
The problem is that he is citing scripture saying it's being fulfilled in their time, but only the parts that they want. They have rejected Leviticus 26, which is a part of the same book. And actually, it's a part of the, the first five books. Forget Isaiah. You go back to the what you say is your foundation, the Torah, and you say, I believe that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled in the nation of Israel today. But I don't believe that Leviticus 26, which says that I will punish you for not obeying us. And that will happen again and again and again until you obey me. It's denying the very source that they say is being fulfilled. That's the problem. Forget the Jesus part. Forget yeah, It's cherry picking. That is the problem with what Benjamin Netanyahu did when he said this to Christians. What he is doing is he's getting people excited to support Israel, which I do 100%, but he's doing it from a flawed premise. He is doing, and I hate to tell him that if he believes the prophecy is being fulfilled in Isaiah that says the desert will bloom and all of this stuff is going to happen, then he better stand up and say, guess what, folks? Two-thirds of us are going to die very soon because that's what another one of the prophets contemporary with Isaiah said. He said that they're going to be destroyed, two-thirds of them, and they're going to mourn when they find out who their Messiah is. So the problem isn't with the word. The problem isn't even with Jesus. It is the problem, but don't get me wrong here. But the problem is that they are not looking at the full counsel even of their own scriptures. They ignore anything that doesn't glorify them. It is all about Israel. The Christians are simply here to make us good again, to make us powerful again, and then we'll take over the world. That is a huge problem. And so when you hear those type of things, don't get drawn into them too deeply. Understand that Israel has got great troubles ahead, great troubles, and that they need to be told, if you believe this, then you need to believe this as well, because that prophet and that prophet are in your same book. Because once you do a John Hagee and you sell out completely to Israel, you have failed to tell them of what's coming ahead. And God's wrath is not going to be pretty on that group of people. So be determined to not kowtow to the Jews at the same time as supporting them. It's very important that we take both and we present them to them equally. We have to let the Jewish people know that they are God's people. They are back in the land for a reason. But that reason ultimately is Jesus. Now you introduce Jesus. But they have to understand that they cannot cherry pick their scriptures in order to come to the situation where they will be right with God. It is not possible. Okay, I didn't mean to divert on that, but it's so important that they understand that because they're deluded if they think that they are having prophecy fulfilled, but only the things that they want to be fulfilled. They're deluded. Okay, apart from Jesus, the most intellectual person on earth can pick up the Bible and find interesting things, interesting patterns of many sorts, for example, but they cannot be properly understood without knowing Christ personally. Because of this, Paul calls it the wisdom of God in a mystery. A mystery in the Bible is something that was once concealed, but is now revealed. It is not something attainable only to certain enlightened people, because a lot of times you will hear people talk, especially on these goofy YouTube videos, well, this is a mystery of God, and only certain people can have it revealed to them. That is not what Paul is speaking about at all. A mystery is something that God reveals through the hand of his apostles. There are certain things that are still withheld from us. The seven thunders in the book of Revelation. Don't write those down, okay? Th those are still a mystery, and they will be until they're revealed at some point. But when something is called a mystery in the Bible, it is now something that is being revealed in one way or another through the apostles, okay? So that's an important thing is that certain people are not given the, the 
insights into these mysteries and nobody else. That is not correct. It is something which is attainable to all who are found in Christ, that Christ died for our sins and was resurrected for our justification. This truth is the hidden, as Paul says, the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory. And this is the mystery which is rejected by those who think they have all of the great answers available without God. They become so blinded by their own intellect, power, understanding, or nobility that they cannot see the work of Jesus for what it truly is. And thus they are excluded from the wisest information of all. And yet it is wisdom that truly even a young child can grasp. Burke, talk about that video that you posted a week or two once again. Little child, little child asked questions that were deeper than the deepest theologians because she had an understanding that there is a God. And with that understanding, she could ask questions that they to this day cannot answer they can't even come close to because they're not working from that point of reference this wisdom from god turns the world upside down this is the wisdom from god which paul speaks of life application don't get sidetracked by folks who use paul's terminology concerning the wisdom of god to place themselves above others as if they have secrets others can't perceive that was never the intent of what paul wrote Paul always brings his theology back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Always. If you have this knowledge and have accepted Jesus' work based on it, then you have the most important knowledge of all. It must come back to Christ or it is absolutely futile. And when somebody starts getting into these mysteries and wisdoms and stuff like that on YouTube videos, shut them off. Don't listen to that type of stuff. It is available to all, but it is available through, yes, hard work. It comes through the study of scripture. You are not going to get a sound understanding of those mysteries by listening to other people simply tell it. You need to have the book open in front of you. You need to say, yeah, that's in context. No, he's taken that out of context. You need to be aware of what the Bible says. And the only way that you can do that is to actually read your Bible by yourself again and again while you're studying with other people, because you have no idea what you're being taught if you don't know the word of God. If you haven't read this book at least once and read it every single day, I read it every day and every single day I think, gee, I just, I completely forgot that was in there. It happens all the time. I've read it how many times and yet I come to something and I say, Lord, it's just like it was never in there before. Does that happen? Yeah, Burke's over there shaking his head. He's read it 872 times and he just, it's amazing. It is an amazing word. If you're not reading it every single day, you are losing because you don't remember everything. It starts leaking out of your ears when you're sleeping. You turn your head over, put a plug in it. That's what happens. So you need to make sure that you read it because it is the word of God and he is reaching out to you through it. Okay, verse 2, 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that amazing? Think of what, Read it again. Read it real loud. Like I didn't before? Okay. No, real loud so everybody can hear. I want them to pay attention. Should we open the door? We open the door, so yes. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What was he just talking about? He was talking about God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. And then he goes on and he says that none of the rulers of the age knew this. If they knew the mystery of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, guess what? Today, if they knew the mystery of God, 
they would not be atheists. If they knew the mystery of God, they would not be evolutionists. If they knew the mystery of God, they would not be worried about global warming. If they knew the mystery of God, they would not be trying to have uh, borders taken down and allowing people to migrate freely. None of that would be happening if they understood the context of the Bible. Here's what it says. This is something that I was going to not say it a while ago. I'm going to say it just so you know. Here's what it says. It's coming up in a sermon, I believe, very soon, or it may be in a prosiepti, but I think it's in the sermon. And it says here in, um, uh, uh, let's see here, verse, I'm going to start with Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance, meaning the nations of the world, to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. He separated the sons of Adam. Everybody knows the table of nations. There are 70 names in there of all the people groups of the world. When he separated the sons of Adam, he, God, set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. There were 70 children of Israel that went down to Egypt. There were 70 nations. According to the 70 nations or 70 children of Israel, so the nations of the world, their boundaries are set by God. That's why we have Chinese people living in China. China. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't travel. That shouldn't. When you move to another nation, you assimilate into that nation. You would be hard-pressed to find somebody move into Israel and not be required to be responsible to the laws of the nation of Israel. And in fact, it says that in the books of Moses. If somebody moves in, they're required to observe this law, this law. They're not required all of them, but they're required to observe the major laws of Israel because it is Israel. It is where the Lord has put them. When somebody moves into the nation of America, they are required to live, unless you're a Democrat, according to the laws of that nation. That's the way it is because the Lord has established that for us. Okay, somebody asked an interesting question one time. Well, what about this nation over through this nation? How is that the Lord determined kings? He sets them up, he breaks them down. If a king is going to take over another nation and wipe that one out of existence, that's because the Lord ordained it. Okay, nothing happens apart from him. But when we try to push God out of the picture, we have nothing but chaos. Okay, it, it's a little bit hard to go through those things and say, where was, was this uh, biblically justifiable, like the Revolutionary War? Was this biblically justifiable, this particular conquest of uh, uh, the Philippines or of Japan, right? Was that? But I tell you, the people in America have always taken the biblical way of handling the nations because when we beat Japan, in World War II, what did we do? Did we make them speak English and start having an, an uh, American flag up? No. We gave them their nation, we gave them their sovereignty, and they said, you're going to live by this constitution, but we allowed them to be the Japanese people. The Philippines, we could have gone in there and done whatever we wanted. Boy, that became bright all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. I think we're going to have a light burn up or something. I mean, that's really bright. Anyway, um, but some nations don't do that. They assimilate other nations. But, I, you know, I'm not able to give you a complete definition of all of those type of things, but I do know that the Lord has established the nations and we need to live by that. Anyway, um, let's go. Um, uh, where was I? Um, he said uh, he's determined their boundaries. Boundaries. Their hab habitation in 17th of Acts. That's, oh, yeah, in Acts 17 as well. That's exactly right. Yeah. That he determined their boundaries. And that's, but he does say. All the way up, and I'll cite that for our text verse, I think, uh, this Sunday, is that in Acts 17, 26 through 28, we're all from one person. Yeah. Okay, even though we're separated according to his wisdom and we are placed in the places where we are, 
We're all from one person. We are all on the same level at the foot of the cross. Okay, anyway, um, so the wisdom of God was hidden from the eyes of the rulers of this age, both Jew and Gentile. Paul says that if they, in fact, knew what was coming, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And yet this is exactly what was needed in order for we as humans to be saved from our sins. There had to be a perfect substitute to take our place. The question then arises, what does it mean that if they had known that they would not have done what they did? The reason this is important is because it can be looked at from two different perspectives. The first one, if they knew that Jesus was the incarnate word, the son of God, they wouldn't have dared crucify him knowing who he truly was, right? Or two, if they knew that his crucifixion would prove that he is Lord, they would never have crucified him. Thus, they would have attempted to thwart God's plans. In Acts 2.36, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Knowing this, even after the resurrection, they still rejected him for the most part, though many believed, so the question remains open. What does it mean that if they knew the outcome of the cross of Christ, they wouldn't have crucified him? These people were utterly and completely ignorant of the wisdom of God revealed in Christ. But today, the wise of the world have heard the message of Christ and they still reject it. In fact, from time to time, someone will utter the immensely stupid words, when Jesus comes back, kill him again. What? Have you ever no, seen, I, that? I I've, seen that? I've seen people walking with their stupid banners, right? And they're in a, a parade. They hate Christians and they say, when Jesus comes back, kill him again. Can you imagine the stupidity of that statement? Yes. If Jesus is to come back, think of this. If Jesus is to come back, it implies a few things. One, he is alive. And thus over 2,000 years old in his humanity, right? He really came out of the grave. This is the second thing it implies. Having prevailed over death. Death cannot hold him. That's Acts 2.24. And so killing him again is utterly ridiculous. Four, he must be God incarnate. Five, if he is God incarnate, then the words of the Bible which testify about him must be true. And six, he then is the only way to be saved. So holding up your stupid banner that says when Jesus comes back, kill him again, that shows the ultimate of stupidity, the absolute ultimate of it. You're acknowledging that this guy came out of the grave. He's alive today, that he came over death. He prevailed over death. He's been gone for 2000 years. He comes back and I'm going to kill this guy again. They, they, they must they be absolutely insane. Just I, under, I understand that, but, yeah. but you understand the premise. I understand that they don't believe it. That's not the point. The point is by holding that up, it shows their utter stupidity, even if they don't believe it. Okay. It's not thinking things cl clearly at all, not at all. Just simply writing that, even if you don't believe it shows how unclear people think. Okay. And yet, despite these logical deductions, his rule and authority are still rejected. Thus, it is not inconceivable that Paul is saying that rather than not crucifying Christ because they would have loved him, instead they may not have crucified him in order to thwart the plans of God, which he had to exalt him because of his work. In essence, they would have hated what the cross meant, just as the world hates it and fights against it today. The wisdom of God revealed in Jesus Christ is unbelievable. To think on what Paul is writing here 2,000 years ago 
and the ramifications of what he wrote even to this day is astounding. All right. The leaders of Israel knew him to be a man of God. They saw his miracles. They heard his words and they rejected him. But the very rejection that they planned was a part of God's own plans for them or for anyone who would be willing to first drop their fists, humble their hearts, and call on this wonderful Lord of glory. This is the amazing thing about the work of God in Christ. Even those who participated in his crucifixion could only be saved because of his crucifixion. What an amazing demonstration of the wisdom of God found in Jesus Christ. Think it through. It's amazing. Well, isn't that kind of what Herod did? That's what Herod did. Absolutely. But Herod could have been saved by him, and he could not be saved apart from him. Right. So even in the act of crucifying him, he was the only chance of him being saved. Well, I'm talking about hearing from the, uh, the wise men. Oh, sure. So That's what great. he was trying to do in advance. Kill all the kids three years old and yep. younger. It's yep. like, okay, you're... <laughs> You're running from God. You're running from God, 100%. Okay, life application. Never underestimate the hardness of the human heart. Those who reject Christ are at enmity with God. Even knowing who Jesus is and what he did for us, many hate him all the more. Be ready to defend your faith, proclaim it boldly, and sometimes do so many times. With witness, prayer, and perseverance, even the hardest heart may soften. All right, now I heard something one time and I thought, what a stupid thing for a person to say. And it was over at the church I was at, and I've heard it a couple times since then during sermons, is that no person should be evangelized twice until everybody has been evangelized once. Have you heard that? You've heard that. Yes. How do you keep score of that? How, yeah, one, how do you keep score of that? But what a stupid thing to say. Yeah. Their idea is that missionaries are more important than speaking out of the pulpit. Okay, they're trying to get funding for their mission. That's usually where this thought comes from. And each time I've heard it, it's been in relation to missions. So you need to fund us so we can get the message out. There's people here that have heard the message and have rejected, but we're telling people that have never heard it. Well, guess what? You're going to get there and they're going to hear it. And very few of them are going to receive your message as well. It is not sound theology to say that. If somebody has heard the message and they've heard it and they, mom, Mom, I've told you this before. She listened to Hank. She was at St. Boniface Church in 1958. She got my dad going to that church out on the key, right? She was in that church for how many years? Long before I was born. And then afterward, I was in there growing up. She's in there. And she's listening after she moved over to Beneva every single day listening to Hank Lindstrom. How many times in 30-minute show did he say you need to receive Jesus? 40? I mean, the guy said it constantly. He said it constantly. He's King James only, so it's a little goofy, but he, he got the gospel right, okay? He said it again and again and again. You know what she said one day? I need Jesus. After how many years of her life being in church, hearing, well, maybe not there, but hearing the gospel from Hank Lindstrom and certainly from Billy Graham because we watched the Billy Graham Crusades when I was growing up. We'd sit there, dinner would be playing during dinner, and we'd be listening to him. Didn't sink in, didn't sink in. And eventually she said, I need Jesus. My brother sat in the same house as I did, listening to Billy Graham Crusades. He, independently of me, independently of my mom, all three of us within about a two month period all met the Lord. Never, not, never talked to each other about it. Just one of those things that happened. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. But how many times did we have to hear this before? That was, there you go. The wisdom of God. You've got to tell, let me read that again. 
Those who reject Christ are at enmity with God, even knowing who Jesus is and what he did for us, many hate him all the more. Be ready to defend your faith, proclaim it boldly, and sometimes do so many times. With witness, prayer, and perseverance, even the hardest heart may soften. Many times. And those that don't, only proves that God is loving. God, absolutely. He will get them exactly what they ask for. They want you want to be separated from God. You don't want me to be your your Lord. You got it. Absolutely. Two nine. However, wait a minute. He raised his hand. Did you? Oh, that was for real. Go ahead. No, go ahead. That was that was a real. I, I, false alarm. False alarm. False alarm. I was like, it must be a false alarm. Plus, it was the other hand. So. Paul said that he denied him ignorantly. He he didn't believe ignorantly. Right. But he, he was a special guy, you know. Yeah, he was a special case, but. But he'd heard all of this. And Absolutely. I, I myself, I think that Stephen is the one that convicted him when, when he vowed and said, don't play this into their church. You know, he. You bet. Uh, he, yep. So he was ready. He was ready, and then Paul met him on the road, but he was still after persecuting until chapter 9. Yeah. I mean, he was chasing the church all the way outside of Israel. So, But yeah. over Timothy, he said, I did it. Yeah, I, I did it in ignorance. This, so. That's right. But you know what? Ignorance of the law, no excuse. That's right. It is no excuse. And even Paul even Paul said that. I mean, not those words, but the idea what? He gets the ticket anyway. That, he gets the ticket anyway. That's right. Okay, 2-9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, wonderful stuff. This is one of the many verses, which is more often than not misapplied by those who quote it. It is not speaking of the future state of the Christian in heaven. Okay, from the surrounding context, we see that it is speaking of the same continuous thought which Paul has been writing about for quite a while. The wisdom of God displayed in the gospel message. Turning again to scripture, Paul loosely cites Isaiah 64, verse 4, which says, 64, verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. But surely confirm or but the word but surely confirms the analysis of the preceding verse which indicated that if the rulers of this age knew that jesus crucifixion would prove that he is lord they would never have crucified him and thus they would have attempted to thwart god's plans the rulers of this age were mentioned twice in verses six and in verse seven as being those who lived by the wisdom of this age which is referred to in detail in chapter one Paul is giving a contrast to that very notion, one hinted at in the Old Testament. Paul speaks of the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Once again, this is not speaking about heaven. It's not speaking about what God is going to do for us. It's speaking about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Okay? It is evident that the rulers of this age didn't love him and continued to fight against him during Paul's time. And for the most part, they still do this to this day. Therefore, it is likely that had they known the fullness of the plan of Christ in advance, they would have worked to undermine it, just as he said Herod did when he was born. But God kept the details hidden, veiled in seemingly obscure passages within the Old Testament. They only became evident in hindsight. 
Even those who love him were unable to clearly see what was coming. Jesus explained much of his work to the apostles, and yet they couldn't understand what he was saying. Remember, he said the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the Gentiles. He's going to be crucified. And on the third day, he was going to uh, arise. And what did they say? They didn't understand what he was talking about. They had no idea what he was talking about. The plan was so incredible that it could never have been comprehended. Even after the resurrection, who? Thomas, thank you. Thomas doubted the words of the other apostles, seeking tangible proof before he would believe. They're all sitting in a room together. Thomas says, I am not going to believe you guys. That is absolutely incredible. He was one of the people that Jesus said to him, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be in the grave and I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. Jesus told him that. And afterward, they said, Jesus was resurrected and it's the third day. He says, I can't believe it. That's too incredible for me to imagine. The women told him. Absolutely. They didn't believe it. <laughs> they, just unbelievable. Right. So let's see here. Um, where are we? Um, Thomas. Yes. Did, okay. The true blessedness of the gospel is set apart then for those who have not seen but still believe. It is by grace through faith that we are reconciled to God. The many wondrous facets of the gospel then are the things which God has prepared for those who love him. It is the current state of the believing soul that is being referred to in this verse, not the future heavenly state. So if you see somebody citing that verse, you don't have to get all over them about it, but just know that they're citing it out of context. It is not speaking about heaven. It's speaking about the glory of what God would do for us in Jesus Christ that the world still doesn't get. They still don't get it. Life application. In order to understand, mis or I'm sorry, in order to avoid misusing verses, ensure that the context of the verses you cite is always considered. By doing this, the hearer won't be misdirected by an improper use of what God intends. Verse 210. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Okay, he's revealed it. Can't be speaking about heaven because there isn't very much about heaven in the Bible. People write books and books and books and books and books about heaven, and people buy books and books and books and books and books about heaven when there are very, very few verses about heaven in the Bible, if you think about it, from the overall state of the Bible. And most of them are so obscure that we really can't know beyond just the context of what's written there, what is being said. Okay, it's the same thing with the rapture. How many books have been written about the rapture? Tens of thousands of books, I'll bet. I'll bet you. And yet, how many verses in the Bible talk about the rapture? You're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Revelation 4 verse 1. And in those 15 and 4, there's only a couple verses that actually talk about it. And then you've got some pictures of it in the Old Testament. And that is it. And that people write book after book and people buy and read book after book after book about the rapture. As if they're going to get some new insight into there. Read your Bible, take it in context, and you will know what the Bible says about the rapture. That's it. The what? Wait and, Wait and be patient. Absolutely. It, now, the, it is true that you need to have, if you want a, a breakdown of the rapture, is it going to be pre-trib or is it going to be post-trib or is it going to be mid-trib or anything like that? You need to understand the context. And that takes sometimes a teacher that has studied the entire Bible. Okay, that's fine. I understand that. But to read a book and a book and, a, and keep reading all these books is not going to get you any closer to understanding the doctrine because you're taking somebody's opinion about right. something 
and they've written a book about a couple of verses in the Bible. Okay, that means that 99.972% of what they have written is just fluff. Don't do that. Okay, so let's go on. Um, uh, where was I? Um, we're in 210, right? Okay, yes. Um, however, those who hear and receive the message can attain them, meaning the uh, wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory. Okay, let me go back and read the last sentence. Despite everything they can accomplish... This is the rulers and the wisdom of this world. They cannot attain the precious facets of the wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. However, those who hear the, and receive the message can attain them because he has revealed them to us through his spirit. Again, a verse arises which, are we at 210? Yes, okay, that's right. A verse arises which is often manipulated and used in a way which is unintended by Paul. This verse is not speaking about a sudden illumination in the individual concerning a spiritual revelation apart from the Bible. Everybody understand what I just said there? Right. Let me read this again. It says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And you will see people talk about how they have got a deep thing of God, a revelation from God, right? And they use that verse completely out of the context. All right. It's not speaking about a sudden illumination in the individual concerning a spiritual revelation apart from the Bible. Rather, the Bible is the key to understanding these things because it was authored by the Spirit for our benefit. Albert Barnes wisely notes the following three points concerning what is being relayed in this verse. One, the people by nature are not able to discover the deep things of God the truths which are needed for salvation. That's the first thing, and that's what this is talking about. Two, that the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and if so, then the scriptures are inspired. And three, that all Christians are the subjects of the teaching of the Holy Spirit, that these truths are made known to them by his illumination, and that but for this, they would remain in the same darkness as other men. In other words, in, in very short term, as Jim is pointing right now, read your Bible. That is what this verse is speaking about. The deep hidden things that God is speaking about is the salvation plan of Jesus Christ. It is about the return of Jesus Christ. It is about what's going to happen in the end times in the book of Revelation. Those are the deep things of God. Not anything apart from the Bible. It is speaking about scripture as inspired and what you need to know for your doctrine and your theology. God spoke in times past through the apostles and prophets concerning the truths of Christ, as Peter explains in his second epistle. Let me read this to you. 2 Peter chapter 1. What's that? 21. 20, yes, one, 20 and 21 is what I want, but hang on just a sec here. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. No private interpretation. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is why I don't believe in extra-biblical revelation, ever. I'm sorry, if somebody says they've had extra-biblical revelation, I'm not going to argue with them about it. I'm not going to say anything other than to say that that better match what the Bible says. Because you get Ellen G. White founder of the Seventh-day Adventist, had all of her extra-biblical revelation. And one, it didn't match up with Scripture. Two, she violates several other verses in the Bible, specifically by doing what she did. 
she's a false prophetess. Seventh-day Adventism is wrong. It is a false system, all right? But I don't believe in any extra-biblical revelation. God has revealed what he wants us to know, and it is in the Bible. If you need extra-biblical revelation, then what's the point of what God did with Christ and the explanation of Christ in the Bible? There's no need for it, all right? These writings, Paul, what Peter just wrote about, not Paul, Peter, these writings are, as Jesus himself says, what testify to him. What's that, John 5, 49? John, yeah, anyway, you search the scriptures, they are what speak of me. It is the Bible which is to be our standard concerning all spiritual matters. To rely on the Holy Spirit for spiritual matters without reading and knowing the Bible is what we would call a category mistake. It can only lead to bad theology, which will by necessity devolve into heresy. Wow, I got to go quick. We got five more minutes. Um, because the Spirit is the one who guided the prophets and the apostles as they wrote, we have the very depths of the wisdom of God revealed to us in the Bible. And the reason is given by Paul. He says, for the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. Everything within the Godhead is available to the Spirit of God. This tells us a few things about the Spirit. One, he has all the knowledge of God. Omniscience. Two, only God is omniscient. Three, therefore he is, like the Father and the Son, an independent person within the Godhead, but in no way separate, and thus the doctrine of the Trinity is confirmed. Everybody understand that? Okay. When Paul says that the Spirit searches all things, it doesn't mean that he is looking for something. The word is arana. It is used, the word arana is used. It indicates a continuous, complete, and detailed knowledge and enlightenment of the deep things of God. Those things that are to be revealed by God in the Bible are from the eternal mind of God. Though some parts of the Bible were penned by Moses and some by John 1,500 years later and many authors in between them, they reflect a wisdom that is fixed, firm, unchanging, complete, accurate, harmonious, and so on. Because this is so, let us take special care to pay attention in our church gatherings. If something is spoken or taught that contradicts any portion of the Bible, then it cannot be of God. If God says that no more than three may speak in tongues and there must be an interpreter, then any, any presentation of tongues which does not match that in a church is not of the Holy Spirit. The Bible explicitly states that women are not to teach or have authority over men. Therefore, if a church has a female pastor, though she may be knowledgeable, eloquent, or uplifting, she is not being directed by the Spirit and the meeting is not authorized by God. In our pursuit of God, we must allow God to be God and be attentive to his words, lest we be found disobedient. Life application and we are done. God has spoken and his word is written. Other than what is recorded there, what more do we need for the development and practice in our spiritual life? The answer can only be nothing. We don't need anything else. That's why I don't believe in, uh, what do you call it? The demon possession, uh, what do you call it? Exorcisms. Why? Because the Bible is the rule and standard of our faith. The Bible does not detail the process of exorcisms. It doesn't detail it in any way, shape, or form. There was a time when demons were brought out during Jesus' ministry. After that, Paul never speaks of what we are to do, how we are to handle it, and therefore, we don't need to worry about it. 
Either somebody's in Christ and he cannot be possessed by a demon, or he's not in Christ and maybe he is. You want to get the demon out of him? Tell him about Jesus. End of story. We have seen that in the projects. We have seen people that were possessed by demons, however you want to call it. Whatever you want to call it, I have seen those people's lives completely change. Am I telling the truth, Tom? Rick? Steve? Jim? They've all seen the people that have had literally demons can't come out of them. Call it whatever you want. Their lives are completely different than they were before. You can be afflicted by demons all day long as a Christian. You cannot be possessed by a demon. It is not possible because the Holy Spirit is in you. Okay? They can afflict you. And what do you do? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Right? That's the answer. If you're being afflicted by demons, then get closer to God. Fellowship with believers. Read your Bible. Pray. That's how you do it. Okay? And if you've got something chemically wrong with you, then get the right medicine and take it. Because some people do have chemical imbalances. The church can pray for you. And if the Lord wants to heal you, that's great. If not, go to the doctor. What did Luke do? He went out and he healed people. What did Jesus tell to the people there? Physician, heal yourself, right? I mean, they had physicians. Nobody said that they're wrong, okay? That's a, another category mistake. But we want to rely on prayer for people as well. That's why we pray for people, okay? Chris's anyway, we, friend, what's that? Chris's friend, that gal we call on at the project, she's... Oh, yes. Absolutely. Good yeah, good example there. Absolutely. 100%. We have seen that. Heavenly Father... Thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful chance to get into your word with these great people here and anybody that might be online that's listening. I would pray for them that they would be built up in their <coughs> theology, that they would be able to comfort others that are going through times of affliction. There's somebody right on my mind right now that I talked to this week. He, he gave me a call and we talked about something that happened in his life. And Lord, you know who I'm referring to and you know their situation. And I would pray for him and his family during their time of difficulty and and you're there for these people, Lord, if they will draw near to you. And you will be their source of comfort. And Lord, I would ask that you would do that to open their eyes to, and their hearts to coming to you, coming close to you, to putting their trust in you fully and completely. All the people that are out there listening and the people in the church here and me as well. Because we all draw back from you in some way or another at one time or another. And help us not to do that, but to just live in the spirit, talk to you and to be in fellowship with you continuously because you are our source of inspiration and joy. And your word is our source of doctrine. Help us to be in your word as well. We love you. We praise you and we exalt you because of what you have done through our great and glorious Lord, our Savior, Jesus. And so it's in his name that we close tonight. Amen. Amen. All right, let's back this up here. I will not be here next you will not be here for what, the uh, Bible class? Yes. Okay. All right.